This week on Dig Me Out. Thunder in our hand, flowers in our bed, I saw yet. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we have a special interview. We did not disclose this ahead of time in the in the sense that we did not put up a preview post because I get real skittish now about interviews and whether they're going to happen or not. Yep. I, I hate putting up a post and being like, hey, we're going to interview so-and-so, and then they just don't show up. So yep. I don't even mention it when we're going to interview people anymore because that's a good plan yeah but guess what our interview happened and uh we just uh, spoke with craig wedrin you know him best from the band shutter to think but he has done a lot of work a lot a, a lot mountain people a mountain yes uh his soundtrack work for television and movies is ginormous and then he's also got a career as a solo artist, and as we mentioned, Shudder to Think. And uh, we got to sit down. Well, I mean, we're always sitting down. But we got to uh, chat with Craig about his latest album, Adult Desire, and a lot of other interesting things that we didn't expect to get to. Like Cleveland and Kiss. and Yep. All the things that make this podcast uh, what it is. <laughs> Cleveland and Kiss. I'm going to turn this into a Kiss podcast one way or the other. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's get to our interview right now with Craig Wedron. Jay and I have been texting about this back and forth. The, the new record is fascinating both of us because, um, first of all, it's the whole VR experience that... Mm-hmm. Where where did that concept come up with? Was that something that you were interested in doing, or did somebody approach you with doing well, that? Basically, um, for my last album, which is called Wand, which came out already in 2011, right? I wrote a whole feature film around it and was planning on it. it well, so Wand Wand was like a very varied sort of hodgepodge, almost like clearinghouse of all this different music I was working on for lots of different projects, things that I thought were really good, um, but that weren't necessarily created as like a single piece of work, but that I just wanted to get out into the world. And so I thought kind of the best way to, to kind of help it cohere and make sense to people would be to make a movie around it because, you know, sort of classic rock films or, you know, whatever you call it, or, or, or I should say, uh, the, the way a movie contains music can make sense of many different genres in a way that um, seems seamless to the viewer and the listener. Whereas if you're only focusing on the audio, um, it can feel like a spiky ride going from uh, genre to, to genre. So I wrote this. So I wrote this film around Wand, and then hooked up with a director friend of mine named Tim Nakashi to try and do it. Okay. He was, he was super gung ho on this brand new technology called 360, uh, 360 panoramic VR, blah, blah, blah. But it was before Oculus existed. There was no 
consumer grade tech and nothing that was affordable. There were just a couple dudes working doing like military applications or Google Earth or something like that. So we got in touch with some of these guys. It seemed it seemed cool enough and he was really enthusiastic about it. I was frankly kind of neither here nor there. I'm like, whatever. Sure. If you're into that, let's do it. And so we shot a couple of videos for, we wound up just, we wound up just shooting a couple of videos for one, at which point I decided it was way too big an undertaking to spend, to commit potentially years of my life making this huge movie, um, which was wild and ambitious in scope and super fun. Maybe I'll get to it someday. But meanwhile, the rest of my life was going on with a lot of film scoring and TV stuff and family. Um, and I have a lot of friends who are filmmakers and directors, and I know how much, what a chunk it takes out of their life. So I was like, okay, you know what? Let's just put this aside for now, especially because um, the technology isn't really even available to people. So to spend the time and the money doing this thing in 360 VR um, for something that like 10 people are going to see is it doesn't seem sensible to me. And so... We, you can actually see one of those videos, which is basically like a trailer for the movie that I had in mind on YouTube 360. The song's called Are We? And it was, it was off of one. We are all So cut to maybe last year or two years ago, and I was working on um, what would become Adult Desire, and I had tons of ideas. I knew I wanted to do some sort of visual accompaniment because I think at this point in my life and career, when I make music, I dream visuals. When I make visuals or I'm working on a movie, I'm thinking about music or I'm watching a movie. So it's all sort of one big schmush at this point. And I also noticed as the father of a nine-year-old and a former nine-year-old myself that the music that sort of imprinted most deeply on me and I think on a lot of people in general lately with what with all the noise and static and clutter of um, modern media and, and just sort of general quote-unquote content is is – when music is married to film, somehow it goes into your bloodstream by osmosis. And so it seemed even more important to me to marry the two because I hoped to somehow get people to watch this. I wanted them to watch an album and keep and want to keep going back to it again and again and again. By the time I didn't have any designs to do another 360 VR thing, but the technology had gotten so affordable and um, portable that when I was recording the record, I, I just had this little handheld, I mean, smaller than an eight ball 360 camera called like a 360 Fly, I think. And I was and and the music on the album was so domestic and and sort of solitary and 
warm and like both earthy and surreal at the same time. And I started shooting home movies on my 360 camera thinking, oh, it would be really, really cool to shoot these kind of psychedelic home movies, which automatically, just when you start shooting something in 360, if you find interesting shots and angles, the mundane becomes pretty monstrous and garish and psychedelic and awesome and beautiful at best. And so, um, and also having learned my lesson from the scope and ambition of the wand movie, which was huge, the sort of like Hodorowski level, uh, conceptual that I was like, okay, I, I need to, I need to scale it way down, do something that, you know, essentially like the, like a bedroom home recording version of a 360 VR film accompaniment to this album again, adult desire. So I started, so I started shooting these, these home movies and then thought, well, what's the best way to get people to keep coming back to the music? And I thought, oh, if I can somehow randomize all the footage and then people will have to try and scramble around figuring out what's going on and piece together the story or, you know, um, whatever their interpretation of, uh, what's, what is or isn't going on on screen, those are sort of partly because the novelty of it and part, partly to try and figure out what it's about, um, that hopefully they'll keep going back and watching the videos and listening to the songs over and over. And eventually before they know it, the songs will be sort of earwormed into their ear holes and then they will have no choice, but be my love slave. And so, um, (laughs) So basically, that was the concept. And initially, I was going to do a whole album's worth, and it was going to be, you know, whatever, 45, 50 minute, I guess, long long form video film. And I reached out to this kid, not a kid, that's offensive to say, he's like a 23 year old man. And he... um, No, he's a kid. He's a kid, right? (laughs) Okay, thanks. We're all in our 40s here. We can say he's a kid. Right. A guy named Jacob. Richards, amazing, and he, I, I came, graduated um, from CalArts, and so I came to him with this concept and sent him, you know, um, wherever the songs were at at that point, and was like, okay, I want to do these 360 randomized home movies that anybody and everybody can watch. I don't think it's ever been done. I've never seen it. Can we do it? And he sort of said, I have absolutely no idea because it hasn't ever been done. So let's try it. And he did the programming and coded it and for um, and did a beautiful job. And for um, size reasons, well, we decided to do it as an app so that anybody could have access to it. And but, you know, you're sort of limited in size as to how big your app can be. So we we wound up scaling it down to um three videos for the initial version and they're going to be probably at least two subsequent versions over the course of the year, which are going to have new songs, new footage, develop the quote unquote story and um, yeah, and build it out from there. So it's almost sort of like a living, breathing, cellular kind of a, I don't know, movie album, moving album. Hopefully it's a moving album for people. And I, I think the if the intent was to get people to go back, I, for me at least, it definitely worked. Because a song like 
safe home. I loved it on the album, but when I saw the visual, like you said, there, then you have this connection between there's this image now in my head and it made me want to go back and listen to the song more. Here's a little wine left over And a little kiss from mom Turn around and smile Somebody sees you You are free You are safe thing I was thinking of when I was watching them the, uh, the first time going through the VR experience, it was like the closest I've gotten to that feeling of, you know, remember when you're, you were younger and you used to spend time with liner notes and albums and like, just immerse yourself in it. Um, it, it was that feeling of like, Oh, I'm in this space where I'm totally focused on this idea and the concept of the record and I'm just immersed in it. And it was the first time I felt that since, I don't know, 15 years where I've really bought a CD and sat down with it and spent time with it. So I, I think from that aspect, it was really interesting. So I'm looking forward to seeing where the rest of these go. Thank you. That makes me, that makes me really happy because that was something that had popped into my mind a few times that I'd spoken about with a few um, friends who are more my age who grew up with vinyl and that magical sort of you know, it's almost like living in this wraparound snow globe of, especially if it's a gatefold kind of an album, and just the 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 level of kind of dreaming that I would do around liner notes and album art, and just staring at you know the cover of like a Pretenders record or something like that, and you know dreaming of being in a band basically, and so um. So I had been doing a lot of thinking about, again, how to sort of re-engage people and to re-engage people's imaginations around music and musical images because we're, we're so numb with it at this point just because of the overwhelming volume of it in the world. So that's great. It's interesting because, you know, when I think back to like growing up in when MTV started not I wasn't probably too young for when it first started but like just after and people talked about the video actually harming the musical component that oh you once you attach that video it becomes the permanent sort of idea of what the song is so if you watch Rio by Duran Duran that image is the thing you associate with that song but it's almost the inverse now. Like there's almost no visual component to any music unless you're watching a YouTube video that somebody yeah. made and you're right. It like and now it sort of grounds it more because nobody's reading, reading liner notes. Nobody's watching videos for most music that comes out. So it does provide this like audio visual experience that people haven't had in on a, on a regular basis in probably 20 years. I, Cause I don't, I don't think that, and when was the last time that MTV actually showed a video? Has it been like since the mid two thousands or early two thousands? It's it's been a long time, and like I, I mean, I think I was that's probably what was it nineteen eighty one MTV started. So I was like 12, eleven or twelve. I started watching MTV 
I, I mean, I watched the rocket take off. I watched Video Killed the Radio Star, and I did not stop watching MTV every second that I could from age 11 to probably like age 18. And so while maybe those haters were right in terms of um, in terms of uh, narrowing our kind of imaginations around what music inspires image-wise or story-wise or whatever it is, for me, they were inseparable. And it so fueled my love of both image and music. And I think everything I do now, whenever I make a record at this point, like, you know, like we're, like I was saying a few minutes ago, it's one in the same for me. And I'm sure that's from growing up with MTV for better or for worse. I, I do think, however, that younger people watch videos because so many of them just listen to music on YouTube. And it seems like almost any time an artist releases a song that there's a video that goes with it. It's just that there's not, there's no like filtered hub for that video. There's no network. Right. I mean, you, yeah. Unless you count YouTube as a network, which is almost, it's more of a platform. I think of it as than, than a network, which is to say, it's not like being curated. I suppose it is though, because of, because of like algorithms that choose. Right. That, that know you. It, That's creepy to me. It's different though when when you can watch the videos on demand. I find that I'm less likely to rewatch a video even if I like it because yeah. it's the same story again. Whereas with this, I felt like the videos were random and then because it's 360 like as every scene would come, uh I would wonder next time it comes like what's going on behind me, what's going on above me. So I, yeah. I found myself like exploring every scene and like looking forward to you know seeing things I didn't see the first time. And I thought the the addition of the lyrics and the typography was really interesting too it, it made me feel like there's these little easter eggs of you know bits and pieces of the album and that you can explore around and find and they connect in interesting times during the music and I, it was it was really compelling i mean i i've worked in as a designer in digital for 20 years so i'm pretty cynical when it comes to this kind of stuff yeah. so i was really really impressed i thank you, thank you. that that means a lot the randomization was also um, going back to what we were just saying about, you know, sort of fixed imagery, you know, uh, uh, ruining or sort of, or sort of freezing one's experience with music. Um, that, that was part of my thinking too. I didn't want it to be, I don't know. I, I, I love chance operations. I love leave it. I mean, it, lyrically in shudder to think even chord progression and rhythm wise and shudder to think it was always about how much do we give people that's familiar and how much do we leave space to sort of, I don't know, positively, creatively disorient the listener so that it hopefully triggers something, you know, so that, so that it's almost like a collaboration where they then have to react and are bringing something unique to the listening experience, as, which was one of the main reasons why back in Shudder to Think, you know, we were generally opposed to traditional verse-chorus structures because once you know what's coming, then you expect it and then you you your thinking shrinks or you start using a different part of, you know, your 
kind of like reactive mind. And so increasingly I find that everything I do, I'm like, well, how can I loosen, how can I loosen it up for myself and for, and for the listener? And, and so, you know, to randomize the footage and then to randomize these lyrics, which sometimes they show up, sometimes they don't, sometimes they show up in one spot and then the next time they'll show up in another spot combined with like what you said, searching around the space, you're having all these kind of axes of exploration, which are, which create unexpected relationships with the music and then hopefully trigger memories or I don't know, just the experience uh, on the, on the listener and viewer's behalf so that they can, so that they have room to plug into it. Cause I, I really, I'm, I'm not interested in forcing, I'm not interested in forcing my ideas on people. I just want to give like a really unique sort of sandbox for us all to play in, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I think is a continuation of sort of shudder to think not mandates, but, but just stuff we were thinking about gnawing on back in the day. And that's interesting because I was comparing, Jay and I were discussing how there are multiple versions of I am the wolf, you are the moon. Uh-huh. And you've got the one on the new record, which is in the vein of the record in terms of being, it's not the acoustic version that people probably would know. Yeah, uh, It's, I'm guessing, done with... Um, loops and it's very sort of digital sounding in comparison it's a way of you can almost see how you took a song that is very sing-songy almost Mm -hmm. and clearly you have like that side of you with the what you're able to do with on soundtracks and stuff like that and you take and then you take this song and you sort of deconstruct it and it's a whole new song even though it's the same song it's a really Mm -hmm. fascinating look at songwriting in the sense that you know the melody's there but what you kind of took apart was the music around it and made it something completely different. I think when Jay and I reviewed um, Pony Express record back, God, that must've been like five years ago when we reviewed that record, you know, we heard a lot of things that were like, Oh, these are, you know, there are songs here that like, if there, if the chorus got repeated, then maybe it would be a more traditional quote unquote alternative rock song. But instead there's just like one chord for four minutes and there's no discernible chorus yet. There's a melody that I can hook on to, and mm-hmm. that was the thing that always intrigued us about that band and your songwriting is that there is this weird tension that is for certain people really attractive because you're kind of being pulled and pushed at the same time. Like this is melodic, but it's also aggravating me at the same time because we're not yeah. getting there's no release <laughs> to the chorus mm-hmm. that you're expecting, yeah. and I, I think that's why. You know, X French T-shirt is is a perfect example. That's a song where it's got a massive closing chorus, you know, but it's in this weird time signature that the band seems to be like locked in, but then not locked in. And it's to us, it's like it's like candy. Like we're like, oh, this is incredible. But then you play to someone who just doesn't listen to that kind of music and they just like look at you like, I don't understand what's going on. I know it's like a it's like a it, it, it's like a run on melodic sentence to some people. They're like, "What? Stop!" It's a great barometer what? of of what people's tastes are. Yeah, completely. But then you know, so many, so, so many 
of the biggest um, Pony Express record fans began hating it. You know, it's like the woman you marry. It's like we met each other and it was hate at first sight. And we've been together for 50 years and I love her. <laughs> the sense of melody to me is what holds like all your material together, despite like all of the maybe the experimentation you might do or deconstruction. There's always this really strong sense of, I guess I'll say pop melody. Where, where does yeah. that come from? What were the I I guess your biggest influences? I think it's just from my family. I just came from a big melody family. Like my mom... There weren't any music. There maybe there were a couple of musicians, like distant cousins. My, there were no professional artists in my family, but everybody, particularly on my mom's side, were super into music. Like big, they just paid close attention and they were kind of spongy about it. And my mom was a big radio singalonger, so the, the radio was just always on, and it was always about for her. She was Simon and Garfunkel, not Bob Dylan, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, it was just, you know, she would have been she would have been Paul McCartney, probably not John Lennon. You know what I mean? So everything was like pretty and catchy, and uh, and then as I don't know, sometime sometime in my teens, I just kind of realized that um, the the power of, you know, you were saying sing song of uh, not lullabies, but, but what's, what's the word for like child songs? Um, we'll just say lullabies for lack of a better term. Just the, the power and simplicity of, um, super melodic, just, just hooks. I, I just grew, I just grew up appreciating hooks. Major key. Yeah. Major minor didn't even matter. Just something that, something that, um, that, just got its talons in you and wouldn't let go, which for me, I think you're right. Although I don't think it's conscious. It's sort of what has grounded everything. And I think that grounded all the music I've done and, and that the tension between, um, a sort of yearning to smash it, to experiment, to disorient and to invent and explore has always been coupled with or married to this, um, like almost child ballads, kind of a I don't know vocal tick, especially something like "I'm a Wolf, You Are the Moon." But but that was actually written for a TV show, very specifically to be a super catchy acoustic straight ahead song. So like the Shutter to Think stuff. Well, so I Am a Wolf, You Are the Moon was a very traditional song that I basically wrote on assignment, but that stuck with me and resonated for other people, which when it came time to do my record, I just smashed it on the wall um, production-wise. Something like Shudder to Think, something like Axe French T-Shirt, um, there was no reverse engineering. Like it was never an a, a quote unquote normal song that we then like fucked up, you know, right. All of shutter, shutter to think songs were just written as presented. Um, in part because I, in part because I can only speak for myself, but we were kind of cocky and full of ourselves. And we were like, we don't need to write normal songs. 
we can totally write normal songs. Why would we do that? Let's just like <laughs> skip the let's just like skip the fuck ahead and write completely like future awesome weird shit that'll keep us challenged and entertained and and keep everybody off kilter and make people feel weird and you know make us feel good or bad or the right combination of both. And so there there was almost this like young, dumb full of cum cockiness of like, we don't need to do that. Why would we, you know, let's, we're better than that or something. I don't know. I mean, that, that that's an overstatement. That, that, that's, that's not giving our young selves the credit that we deserved. Cause you know, we were always like nice, decent, conscientious, art minded characters, but there was a precociousness to what we were doing where it wasn't until Pony Express record didn't, you know, perform commercially for lack of a less disgusting way of putting it. Um, the way that the record label was hoping and the way that we were hoping that anybody ever said to us, guys, you need to write some normal songs or else um, you're not going to be able to continue recording, you know, for at least for Epic Records. And then when we started doing film soundtracks, which was a very natural kind of extension of what we were doing, where you get very, very specific stylistic assignments of like, we need a lullaby, we need a Johnny Cash song, we need something that sounds like David Bowie, that we went backwards to all of the steps that we had missed along the way, or all the steps that we had cockily skipped over along the way and we're like oh okay let's actually write some like bubblegum or some folk or some you know glam but then it all and then in my solo output it's all just smushed together because i don't feel like i have anything to prove anymore like i'm not afraid of writing a normal song anymore nor am i afraid of you know writing something weird and unique and kind of jagged and tangly and so it's all just kind of i just don't distinguish between any of it anymore it's all just one song it's just one long song did the soundtrack work kind of be a convenient excuse for the band to be more conventional at times like well we have to do this because this is the point of the the scene that we're trying to write to or the movie we're trying to write to did by it like the, remove that tension by the time we started doing soundtracks which was the first one we did was first love last rights um which was a collection of of very specific genre songs, which corresponded to the record collection, like a, a singles collection of one of the main characters. Um, by that point, we had, I think that was around the same time as or just after 50,000 BC. After Shutter to Think, uh, I'm sorry, after Pony Express record and 50,000 BC, we were all feeling pretty straight-jacketed by being in a band and Either we had to be a weird band or we had to be a normal band. And the whole being any kind of band, I think, was becoming um, a weight and a nuisance and a noose. And so soundtracks and having sort of assignment-based work was like a vacation and a way to loosen up the, um, the straitjacket. So it was, it was like a little it was like a free pass to just get to enjoy music, just to really, uh, I don't know, explore and express 
the things that we were raised on that were in our DNA that we loved, but wouldn't dare allow ourselves to do because we were shuddered to think, which was not what we were thinking while we were writing any of our records. It was just a sort of cumulative creeping exhaustion with our, with the confines of our identity that we had kind of co-created by that point. We were like, Oh God, the idea of going back and like doing another Pony Express record or doing a more commercial record was sort of like, that doesn't sound light or fun or like hot. Let's do soundtracks. And then it was light and fun and hot again for a minute. And then we it, uh, you know, had it with uh, each other. <laughs> I'm just kind of struck by the irony of that. Like, uh, you know, uh, say in a Wikipedia entry, you guys are described as avant punk. Yet, you know, you're talking, you're speaking to the the bands. If you're avant punk, you would think that's all about freedom. But yet there's like, uh, like you described it, a straitjacket around the band of like, well, this is what we have to be now. Whereas, you know, giving assignments to write for movies it sounds like you actually felt like more free, which is, it's the freedom, you know, it's the freedom that actors feel in, in characters and in masks. I mean, writing, doing film soundtracks because each one is different and unique and um, very strictly organized. It's a, you know, it's a freedom from oneself. It's a freedom from the grind of like soul, searching and digging. It's got its own issues. And I've been doing it now for about 20 years. And I'm now just starting around adult desire. I was like, okay, it's time to sort of rebalance it a little bit. I am now ready to like go back to that kind of blackboard, whiteboard trough of unique uniquely expressive music for myself or for my band or whatever it is, um, rather than the, the, the mask work, uh, rather than focusing solely or even mostly on sort of the mask work of, um, and character work of, of film soundtracks. Not like I don't want to keep doing soundtracks. I just want, I just feel um, a rid, my own original music or Shutter to Think music or whatever it winds up being kind of reemerging again as like a priority. So, so, I mean, I think, you know, it's all just, it's all just these little tricks that we have of keeping ourselves, um, feeling like life is fun and happy and free and like we can do whatever we want, even though I don't know if that's actually true, but it kind of means if you're bobbing and weaving and dodging your own, um, you know, your own shadow boxer, if I don't know if that metaphor makes sense, but it's like in shutter to think we were sort of faking ourselves out before it got stale. Cause we felt like, uh, it's starting to feel it's like a little bit heavy and not heavy in the fun way. Like, you know, like we were a heavy band, but we never felt heavy inside until toward the end. And then with soundtrack stuff, I guess I started having that feeling maybe a year or two ago. Where I was like, this is starting to feel a little heavy. And right on time, it was like time to make some, you know, time to put out this record. And 
start a record label to put out music by my composing team, film soundtracks, their other projects, collaborative stuff. So it's all just about like finding little cheats and tricks to keep everything fresh feeling. What's your um, education in music? Did you have a traditional education, self-taught? What, what's your no, background? Self-taught, which I think fed into the uniqueness of Shudder to Think because um, we didn't know how to do wrong music right. And so it was like doubly trippy, <laughs> if that makes sense. We were just sort of like, I don't know, how do you do it? You put your fingers here, right? Ooh, that sounds weird. Great. What's the next chord? And just having done it for so long, I've been playing music since I was like 12. Uh, I definitely have learned, like I've always had an innate just like feel for music. And like I said, for melodies and and phrasing and, you know, rhythmic, somehow like rhythmic structure. But I now like definitely get music. I understand how music works, but I still don't formally, I mean, I couldn't write it out for you. Um, so I can sit there and like create, you know, an orchestral cue for a movie or a TV show, but then I need somebody to write it out for the players. So, so it's, you know, it's, it's always, it's always interesting. And, and in a way I kind of like having one eye blind because I definitely won't ever, not that anybody could ever know everything about music, but I for sure won't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is yeah? Is there like a little bit of magic in what you don't know? Like yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it keeps and it keeps me having to come up with like clever, unique solutions instead of like oh well obviously this is um, we're in this mode and so this is the chord that comes after this chord and how we get to and the transition chord to get to this key. So it might take me a little longer than. Um, a traditionally trained composer to get there. But when I do get there, which I usually do, um, it's got its own unique character or spin on it. At least that's what I tell myself to um, keep myself from feeling like a loser. <laughs> do, you, do you think that as a musician, you are able to pick up on, I guess, or, or be a mimic of other um, genres or music that people don't associate with you. I'm thinking like in terms of like soundtrack work, when I look at like movies like Role Models or Wet Hot American Summer or, or something like that, there's music that you've done where you go, oh, well, that's a Paul McCartney-esque song or that's a ZZ yeah. Top-esque song, um, yeah. which are very specific things. And are you able to figure out what those yeah, things are? Yeah, I think that goes back to um, something having to do with the musical side of my family, the the sponginess, you know, like everybody, like not everybody, my mom, my grandfather, my mom and my grandfather in particular, they just like were able to pick up 
the, the, the quirks and the kinks of a song that was on the radio or, um, whatever. And, and growing up, I always had a knack for mimicry, um, of voices and songs. And so I can take apart a watch maybe more easily than some kind of figure out how a thing works, which serves me in my film soundtrack stuff. And then, yeah, that was, that was always, Oh, Oh. And I, and I think when, when I started singing in bands, when I was like, 12, it was all cover bands. So I literally was um, mimicking Paul McCartney or Steve Perry or Susie Sue or Ozzy Osbourne or whoever it was, like whatever song we were covering. And my first bands were, my cover bands from like middle school and junior high school were based in Cleveland. So we really weren't picky. Like we would do Sex Pistols and Journey and the cars and the fucking Bee Gees and Van Halen. It was all the same to us. It was just awesome music. And so I did, like I learned all these voices and I was sort of a perfectionist too. And um, so I had to get it right. Okay. Wait a minute. We got to back up. What part of Cleveland? Shaker Heights. Okay. Why? Uh, Well, I lived in Chagrin Falls for a number of years, which is on the other side. And then Jay is from Amherst, which is not far from there. But he lives lives down in Austin now, and I'm in Columbus. Did you um, did you watch a futile and stupid gesture yet? Not yet. It's in my I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, because it's about a Chagrin Falls guy, which we didn't even know. Yeah, yeah. There's not too many famous people from Chagrin Falls. Uh, No. The guy who did Kelvin and Hobbes is one. Really? And yep, like one NFL player. Wow. And, and then and then was it Doug Kenny? Is he the one who's from? Yeah. Doug yeah. Kenny. yeah. So uh, anytime anybody has any connection to Ohio, we have to explore that. Uh, oh yeah, completely. Sure. We could we, we could do a whole <laughs> thing on that. Yeah. So I basically from about age four to sixteen, I was um, a Cleveland boy. Formative years, all of it. Okay. And David. And then David Wayne, who directed A Futile and Stupid Gesture and Role Models and Wet Hot. Right. He and I grew up there together. He was also a shaker boy. And so um, that's, you know, all roads lead back. See that now, now all the things are like making sense in terms of like having an understanding of like classic rock. Because Cleveland is such a classic rock town. Especially then. It was like 70s and 80s. Exactly. And it, it just, it seems like. As soon as those albums came out, they instantly became classic rock. Even though classic rock didn't exist as a genre until yeah. another decade, it was like all that stuff just got imprinted on everybody who lived in that area forever. Completely. I mean, it was like a, a, kind of before our conscious music devouring era. Cleveland was the proving ground for every record label. They would be like, I don't know. Let's see if we can break it in Cleveland. I mean, you know. Bruce Springsteen wouldn't be Bruce Springsteen without Cleveland. And and then there were so many bands that were popular in Cleveland that I thought were just massive everywhere in the world, like The Babies, which was John mm-hmm. Waite's old band. But, mm. but even other Midwesterners our age don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. But the <laughs> Cleveland, there's just so many weird things. Or like Donnie Iris. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
Um, um, we could talk about Donny Iris for a while, but Michael Stanley Band is the other one. Yeah, like, yeah. If you're from Cleveland and, and that part, of your, Michael Stanley Band is the equivalent of like Chicago to yeah. like <laughs> the rest of the country. I mean, Who Can't Love You is one of the great, like, <laughs> you know, I don't know, what, what would that era be called? It's like classic rock, new wave pop. I don't, I yeah. don't know. Uh, a friend of ours actually just wrote a book and it's coming out in March about Donny Iris. Really? Yes. About Donny Iris and the Cruisers. And it's a 500 page book. And one of the things that it explores, which is really interesting, is the regionalization of rock in like the 70s and 80s. How there could be a guy like Donny Iris or a guy like Michael Stanley that are huge in like a couple Mm -hmm. of cities and then nobody knows them anywhere else around the world. Yeah. And it doesn't happen anymore. And I think Cleveland was a very, very. I would argue that Cleveland is probably the best example. It would be like the gold star example of that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the WMS, cause of home of the buzzard. The buzzard. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember um, I have older brothers, so the Michael Stanley thing was huge with them. And like, this is a guy who he sold out. He would sell out like three nights in a row at the you know the major arena where yeah. like. Bruce Springsteen would play, but he would sell out three three dates in a row. Yeah, like, do you imagine that happening now, just locally? It's insane. It is insane. Although I do think about that. I I think about that a lot with X, who are probably at the end of the day my favorite band of all time, because they're still like kind of a local band Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, and they'll sell out wherever they play here in Los Angeles. You know, I mean they're club size not like arena size but but i wonder is that the same because they were trying to like make it big but i mean so is michael stanley right yeah yeah and so is donny iris i'm sure yeah so i want you know that regional thing the regional thing is interesting i I don't know i i don't get i was having this conversation with somebody yesterday at a party about are there regions since the internet like are there scenes i think in hip-hop there is Mm-hmm. Not in rock. I think that has. Right. I think that ended at the end. At the end of the early two thousands with the New York Brooklyn sort of that scene. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I don't think that there's really been another regional or city based scene in rock music. Yeah. The way that hip hop seems to have very distinct styles based on right. region. region, but I think even that is starting to like because of the internet and because there is no demarcation line in the same way anymore that you're just not going to have that now it's country based now it's like hey what's the newest Mm k-pop right right but i mean even that's even that's going to go away i mean there's so much from so many places i mean pretty much any western country any pop music from just about any western country is going to be very hard to distinguish from another one Right, like Swedish pop versus American pop versus British pop music. Now, I, I, I don't think we'd pass the. I don't, you know, I, w- I wouldn't be able to to ace the taste test. Yeah, I don't even. I I think really the future is just everything being separate in genre. I mean, that's it. There's mm-hmm. no. It's not going to be about region or nationality because of the the web which mm-hmm. is such a like old man thing to say oh, it's the damn web it's just yeah. changing everything well, no, I, 
but but I don't. I mean, I don't. I, I don't feel like any of us are um, judging or casting aspersions on it. It's more like a phenomenon, it, a, a true revolutionary phenomenon that we've witnessed in real time. Which you know, it's like the printing press. I mean, I, that is an old manish thing to say. I mean, come on, guys. I just, I just, <laughs> it's like the cotton gin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, but, <laughs> probably save ourselves. Uh. <laughs> so you've written for um, in the context of the '70s and the '80s in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been approached to write something that's set in the '90s, and could you do that? And if so, how would you approach it? Oh, for like, sure. Well, hey, this well, movie set in '95. We need we need some songs that sound like that. How would you go about doing that? So I've done two '90s things so far. One um, is Wet Hot American Summer ten years later. Oh which yeah, was, I guess that is yeah. yeah. And and I was really not excited to do it because I had a lot of. You know, I ha- it's a very bittersweet era. Shutter Think was happening. All of my peers, and in some cases, my friends, were people. Were people? You know, doing the '80s is and the '70s is doing my heroes. They're posters on the wall. Um, they're idols, and they're and they're like monumental to me. Doing the '90s is like doing my friends and doing my peers and people who, in some cases. Um, I loved some cases I really didn't love. Um, I had a much, but I think Shutter, I think in general, and probably everybody, you have a much um, more judgmental, cynical attitude about your peers than your heroes when you're in your 20s and competing against them, right? In whatever way. And it was also like such a strangely nocturnal era that had a lot of darkness to it that I wasn't sure I wanted to revisit it, which lasted about three seconds until I was into my first like spin doctors ripoff where I was doing like white, <laughs> white I was doing like white scatting being like <laughs> and then I was like this is going to be the funnest thing I've ever worked on And then I and then I, like I did this cue that was it was basically it was like a Fugazi homage and um, <laughs> I just had the best time and then I was like let's see what haven't I covered I was like oh there's this cue that I did that kind of sounds like Pearl Jam but it also kind of sounds like Chili Peppers so what if for the end credits I do a duet with myself of my Eddie Vedder impression duetting with my Anthony Kiedis impression. And so I did, you know, it turned out out really great. It was very fun.
Um, but, and then other the other one is uh, Fresh Off the Boat, which is an ABC um, like family comedy that takes place in the '90s, and it's about um, a fam. It, it, it's about it's about an Asian family that moves from DC to Orlando in the '90s, and the oldest son who I guess when it started he was 12 a few years ago um is obsessed with hip-hop and so I was just getting to I mean I was just going I I was going full Dre which was so fun because a lot of zap samples no no like like just straight g-funk oh it was like yeah it was like Dre Snoop I don't know what were the what were the other things I was. Warren G. No, what's that? Warren G. Was in that in that group. Warren G. Yeah, it was like a, it was just had a whole crew, mainly West Coast. I was doing definitely like a West Coast take on it, but um, nobody had ever asked me to do that because coming up in punk and alternative, everybody I think thought of me as like a rock dude, so it was like open the floodgates, total pig and shit. Cause that stuff's in my DNA too. And by the time I was asked to do it, I knew exactly what gear was used to make it. So it was like, I absorbed all of it in the nineties and, but would not have necessarily known exactly how to make it in the nineties. But by the time, you know, by the time I had a chance to do it, it was like, Oh yeah, yeah. I'm so ready. I've got all the gear. And so so that's the other '90s thing, but I think that I think that's it. I think those are the only '90s things. Is there a, or was there a point when you were doing this, uh, when you're doing soundtracks and you're doing work for TV shows, where you know you some of the stuff you mentioned, like for What Had American Summer, it's it's funny, like it's because it's a comedy. So, but I would imagine that at some point, maybe in the '90s, when Shudder to Think was fully active and stuff. If somebody was like, can you write a funny song for the end of this movie? That might have taken you aback a little bit. Because I think some people think as musicians, like, well, there's a there's a line. Like, I can't write jokes. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely took us a little while. Again, it's like about sort of shaking off these weird identities that we impose upon ourselves, which are basically arbitrary and things that get invented when we're kids that tend to stick with us. But once you start getting in the habit of shaking and breaking the chains, you're like, oh my God, you do whatever you want. Like these rules are so arbitrary of like, well, no, I'm a serious artist. Well, no, I'm, I'm a comedy guy. Well, no, no, no. I only do, you know, noise. It's just so anybody at a certain point, and I think it was during Shutter to Think. At a certain at a certain point, and I think this happens with a lot of musicians, you realize you're like, I just love music and I don't really care what kind of music it is. There might be some things that I love more than others, but good music is good music, and I kinda wanna do it all. And once like that first domino falls, it's like a it, it, at least for us, it was a blast. So we were like, Oh, this is great. We can do because I'm reminded of a story where we were asked Shudder to think to be on a compilation. And I don't remember what the compilation was for. I don't know if it was on Epic Records, but it was while we were signed to Epic Records. And we wanted 
to do the song Sugar Sugar by the Archies, which I think is one of the best songs ever. And um, and I remember our A&R guy, who was smart and a wonderful A&R guy, he was like, you can't. We're like, what are you talking about? He's like, you're shudder to think. You can't do like the most bubblegum of all bubblegum songs. And we were like, uh-oh, you know, flashing red light. It's time to time to put on a different mask. And it was around then that we started doing soundtracks. So, yeah, I think it probably took a minute for us to figure out how to do it. But I think we always secretly wanted to do lots of different stuff. But in terms of writing funny songs, usually the funniest songs aren't overtly funny, but they're just in a funny context. So I usually leave like the funny stuff to my friends who are writing and acting in the show. And then you put like a really straight, honest spin doctor's homage. It's going to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. Like God, like, I have to hear that now. It's, 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 <laughs> I will say it's not very good. It's not like my it's it's not my proudest moment, but it's but in context, it just totally works. It's like a it's a what is it? It's a. A chef's montage. It's like a cooking montage. It's like one of the <laughs> one of the ex campers or counselors has become a fancy chef, and he's like in his kitchen, and it kicks into like you know, a sort of a two princess thing. But um, but I don't know if the song that song might be funny, but some of the other ones aren't. Actually, I, I think for interestingly for the '80s stuff, I don't think I wrote anything funny. Oh, except for uh, Ret- uh, Electricity, the the musical. But for the actual sort of sound alike songs, like the Pretendersy song or the Gary Newman song, it was really straight. I was like, I gotta, these are my idols. I gotta do justice to them. With the 90s stuff, where it was more my peers and my friends, it was more of a ribbing. It was more making fun of. I mean, in a loving way. I mean, I love obviously Smashing Pumpkins and Fugazi and everything. But, um, you know, but it was a little more, it was a little more taking the piss. I guess it's, it's, strange now because you know the 90s have a reputation of being super serious like it was grunge and it was dour and everything was about you know uh a very straight laced straightforward uh uh, music musical approach we were just you know getting rid of all the the ridiculousness of Mm -hmm. 80s glam and and silly pop music and all that stuff but now when i look back and when we have talked to people various musicians and and see where paths have led people, you know, you know, the movie that you worked on, uh, the first soundtrack, the first love last rights, that was, um, Jesse Peretz who was in the Lemonheads, who also then when we start tracing like, well, who worked with who, like he worked, uh, with Clay Tarver who was in Chavez, which is a very like serious, like that's a heavy band, man. I mean, that's angular, but then yeah. now he's writing Silicon Valley. Yeah, and that's like, right. How like and we had him on the show years ago, right when that show was like first starting. So it was like mm-hmm. we didn't even know what was going on exactly. Yeah. But like you start to realize like, oh, well, people and I, I don't think this is maybe when we're younger, we don't realize this. But people aren't one thing like right. what you do in your 20s with a guitar is not necessarily what you're going to be in your 40s when you have a family and mortgages and you're not looking at music as like, well, I, I can't put out an album anymore, so I don't know what else I'm going to do. It's like, no, you take opportunities 
that are still connected to music. They might not be like, I'm not putting out an album, but I'm still getting to create. I'm working with creative people and I'm just oh, doing yeah. something just... totally different with it. Dude, uh, we, the first time I met Jesse, we were opening for the Lemonheads in Leeds, England. And it was like maybe 91 or something like that. And, um, and then it would be a few years before we sort of re-met and got to be friends again. And Je- it was Jesse's last night playing with the Lemonheads. And he ritually burned his suitcase, set it on fire right on the street outside of the club and washed his hands clean and walked away. So it wasn't like, you know, Jesse getting into video and film wasn't um, – I don't think it was an adult choice. It was, it was, he was just done, which happens when you're in a band. And again, I, it has to do with these friendships and relationships and sort of um, identity. I don't know, these identities we set for ourselves at a certain age, which are free or these identities, which we create for ourselves, which are liberating at a certain age. And then at another age, they're completely confining and you just have to get out of them. And I think that's why it's so hard for a lot of bands that get huge to stay great because it's very hard to stay happy doing something that you invented when you were a teenager or like in your twenties. So like, of course it's hard for you two to make a great record now. Yeah. Of course, of course REM broke up, you know, it's like how, I mean, it's really, really, I, I think about, I don't know, I was watching like the Tom Petty documentary the other day. It's like to to have to be that character and come up with like new angles on the same character year after year, that is, um, it, it's exhausting sounding. So it's funny, I see Clay because um, our kids play in the same baseball league. So we hang out at baseball games and we talk about punk rock and, and, and we talk both about punk rock and then we talk about, um, you know, Silicon Valley and what hot American summer and whatever else we're working on. And it's trippy because it seems like saying dude from Chavez and dude from shutter to think now doing these comedy shows and at a baseball game, that's like the way that we were raised. That's three completely separate humans right but it it's it's just not it's just couldn't be more normal and natural and i think i don't know i think maybe that's a healthy thing about the time that we're living in is the whole kind of like rock star silo has been so thoroughly shattered probably again by like technology and the internet and you know barriers between things just evaporating that um you know i I think people just generally feel freer to be like, oh, I feel like doing this. I'm going to try that. Oh, cool. I feel like doing this. I'm going to go back to that old thing I did. Oh, cool. You know, it's not, it's not selling out for Chavez to make, you know, a new record or put out a new bunch of songs that they, I think did like last year or whatever. It's like, it's great. It's absolutely what they should be doing. And it's absolutely right that they should have taken a break because otherwise everybody would have been miserable and they would have started sucking. Right. Maybe not. I'm sure there are exceptions to it, but it's, it's, it's a lot to ask of a person to be the same forever. 
Yeah, and I think that that's uh, another thing that uh, in doing this podcast that we've come to really embrace or or enjoy is that so many people that we've had a chance to talk to are just they're doing things that they never predicted. Uh, whether it's you know we talked to you know Kay Hanley from Letters to Cleo and she's writing mm-hmm. Doc McStuffins songs, yeah, and, awesome. and we both have daughters that are of the age to watch Doc McStuffins, so we're like. Yeah. We're enjoying it from that respect. We're like, okay, well, it's our daughter's favorite show or what have you. And then also from the fact we're like, we're getting a little grin out of it because it's like, I, yeah, it's, it's Lars Cleo. But then they can come back now and make a record and kind of do it at their own prerogative yeah. because they don't have to worry about a record label now. They can put it up on mm-hmm. Pledge Music. Yep. Fans who want to find it will find it. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole new um economy around that now where people don't have to rely on a major label that maybe would poo poo certain things Mm -hmm. and a whole new interaction occurs between fans and and artists i'm just curious about your perspective on that side of the of the new uh reality for musicians of using stuff like pledge music or kickstarter or or those sorts of projects to get music off the ground is that something that you're in favor of do you like that aspect of it yeah yeah for sure um i think again you know i think it's very freeing ultimately creatively um i've been scheming about doing a um a patreon shutter to think thing because i think we're going to be remixing from the ground up basically we digitized all of the um, discord era multi-tracks and as much as I love those records particularly 10 spot it just doesn't the mixing doesn't do justice to the songs in my opinion and so I just really have for a very long time wanted to just get in there and rebuild them not re-record anything just like mix it well now that we know what we're doing and have the time and the gear to do it and so you know, so I've been thinking about different ways to do it on Patreon so that it's not like we're releasing these albums. It's more like, hey, here's this song with this ephemera that relates to the song and you can subscribe to it. And, um, you know, potentially leading into some new Shudder to Think stuff. I, I just have all these parts that I've written over the past few years, which feel like Shudder to Think music, except that everybody's scattered everywhere. And so it's a very hard while we all love each other again now, um, we're just not in the same place. So the will's there, but not the not the logistics. So to make a new Shutter to Think album is overwhelming and exhausting and probably not good for people's lives and health. But to do but to work on stuff together in a way and at a pace that suits our lives and serves the music would be really, really cool. So then it's like, okay, well, how do we, then what do we do? Is it just for us? Do we release singles? Um, do we do it on something like Patreon, you know, or, or who knows, but, but I like that there are all of these little, um, less pressurized, more creative sort of, um, outlets. Yeah. So I think it's pretty cool. I love that you're considering remixing because <clears throat> obviously remastering is a many artists do that, but 
I, I'm always puzzled at why more artists don't go back and, and remix mm-hmm. and even come up with like not only just better presentations of the songs, but also just different different mixes that are interesting and kind of a different take on different songs. And, you know, if you really love an album, who wouldn't want more of that, you know, to yeah, hear different sure. angles and, and whatnot. You always have the original. Yep. Yeah. I'm super excited about that. We're just, I don't know. First we were going to go in order. We were going to go 10 spot funeral, the movies, get your goat. Now it's like, Oh, maybe we'll just do whatever songs we feel like. I don't know, but it's very fun. Well, and Patreon's a, is an interesting choice. That's what we use because it makes sense for a, a monthly subscription or, and, and doing a weekly podcast. But it, if you're not releasing an album and you just wanted to do a song at a time, that would be an interesting way to do it and mm-hmm. then really make it more of an, of a subscription based format. I would, cause you know, yeah. Kickstarter and pledge are just kind of a one shot deal. Yeah, in exactly. Sense. So yeah, I would subscribe to that. That'd be, Great. that would be cool. <laughs> Where, where is your newsletter? We'd like to subscribe. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like um, Carl Glanville, who mixed uh, 50,000 BC and um, the Velvet Goldmine stuff, is, I, I mean, I, he, over the weekend, he was he was mixing, um, he was doing a new mix of Jade Dust Eyes, and, and it's going to, from, from Ten Spot, was going to send it to me, I was hoping, this weekend. So, I mean, it, it's sort of a test. You know, we're like, okay, let's see, like, how how this can sound and then, you know, maybe just sort of do the first one, just post it for fans and be like, look, would people, you know, we need to know honestly if people would be, is it, is it worth our time to, um, you know, to do this or, or worth our time and money? You know, would people, would people, um, subscribe? So, so we'll probably be sending it out just to kind of like take the temperature of people out there and see if it's something that would, um, you know, pique people's interest and, you know, at least be able to fund itself. Well, I'll say when I revisited those records uh, this week, I that was the thought I had is, wow, these songs are great, but the production is is hurting, <laughs> hurting my ears a little bit. You know what? I'm so, <laughs> glad, I'm so glad you say that because interestingly, like the basic sounds that we recorded are really good. It's just we just didn't know quite how to mix a record. Mm-hmm. That we did it so fast. Everything was so fucking fast. So, and they're not fast songs. They're like really, even our early stuff, they're really dense in terms of like melodic information and chord, and chord information. And so, you know, I, th- I think that those songs are worth, I mean, it's not, I was having this conversation with Ian McKay a few months ago because I was like, dude, can you hold off on the 10 spot re-release on the 10 spot remaster release? Because we're going to remix it and we could do it like all as one thing. And he was like, and, and first of all, it was too far. They were already too far down the line to wait for us to start remixing stuff. Um, so it didn't work out time-wise. But the other thing he was like, he was like, I'm really curious, you know, to hear how it comes out. But like, basically I think it's a bad idea. <laughs> you know? And I was like, why, why is it a bad idea? He's like, I mean, you don't want to fuck with people's like memories and relationships to things. When Iggy remat, remixed, Raw Power, everybody hated it. And I remember that when he remixed Raw Power. Mm-hmm. I hated it. I didn't hate it. It just wasn't as good as the original, which sounds like it's like the sound of of like a razor blade cutting through cocaine or something like that on like a paper table. It's just so intense. And um, and I said to him, I was like, yeah, but like that's Raw Power. It 
it's a it's about it's about raw power. It's about the feeling. It's not about like these, it's not about like intricate, you know, guitar play or like these subtleties of a of a song. And I feel like the Shutter to Think stuff is so much more songy than a lot of that. That I don't know. The flip side of it is Sgt. Pepper remix, which is unbelievable to me. It's so beautiful. Um, but we're gonna do it because it's gonna be because it just needs to happen. And I, I think if it's presented as clearly this is a revisiting of the record, it's not to replace the old record. Yeah, you know, not. like Kiss did that with Destroyer. It's called like Revisit or something. And they put in like different guitar solos and alternate mixed oh, yeah. takes on different things. And yeah, like yeah. you get that it's not to be, when you look at it in their catalog, it's not Destroyer. It's a different version of Destroyer. Oh, so that's, you, cool. that's cool. That's good. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can have both. It's, it's okay. Yeah. I want yet yeah, now I want you to be following the kiss format. Shutter no, to kiss. I, dude, uh, I'll, uh, my entire life has been following a kiss format. I you can add you some extra, sweeten some crowd noise and uh, yeah, exactly. I'm just going to do I'm just going to do a 45 minute um 45 minute just banter strung strung together. What like Bob Pollard? Now we're doing no. uh, Have you have you have you heard the Paul Stanley like just banter thing. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. You're talking okay. to a huge Kiss fan here. Oh, that's, I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, Jay is an expert. We actually did a roundtable discussion on Kiss uh, in the just in the 90s last year. Oh, so, Kiss uh, in the 90s? Yeah, that's we, yeah, deep. Yeah, deep. We went deep we, on Carnival of Souls. Let's just put it that way. I we mean, go there. We went I there. I begged off after Unmasked, I think. I think Unmasked. Understandable. Yeah. I mean, there was a little... David Wayne was super into Creatures of the Night, so we did a lot of listening to Creatures of the Night. And then and then I listened to I listened to the... Whatever the one came out last year, I listened to some. It was pretty good. There have been a couple decent records over the last 20 years. Um, what was the they're, they're a band that, that um, we love to hate as much as we love. Yeah, <laughs> They're they're disgusting, but also like literally I wouldn't be here without them. Yes. It's strange in that way. Hey, I want to ask you about the baby album. That's one in your catalog that I just um, discovered recently. So that got re-released and it was originally recorded in the early 2000s and a re-release. What's the story behind that record? Yeah. So um, I had a band called Baby, which started as just me recording all these songs i started doing it around 1999 or 2000 or so and i was just like this was before the whole 80s revival but in my mind i was like well what if mid 80s were never interrupted by um you know hair metal and glam rock and stuff like that and that alternative never happened and what if it had just continued in this sort of like um dancey experimental pop direction and so um so I started recording all these songs and then I put a band together around these songs called Baby and we performed a little bit around New York City, but we never we never really took it outside of the city. And I put the record out, I guess maybe in 2004 and then, I don't know if it was a re-release, I just put an expanded collection of Baby songs up on um, Spotify and like streaming things a few years ago. Okay. I found it to be 
really interesting in that it's, I don't know, I felt like the most pop oh, oriented sure. that you've done. Yeah. Oh, that's the other um, thing. It's like bubblegum. Like I'm, I, yeah. was, I was sort of reacting, I think, against Shudder to Think. I was like, okay, fancy, melodies, electronic, everything I loved growing up. So if somebody comes to you and says, okay, I really like Pony Express record, where do I go next? Where do you tell them in your catalog? Well, I don't know. I mean, I might point them, I might say, listen to Adult Desire. It depends how old they are. I mean, or, or if we're talking about the whole thing, I mean, I would go Pony Express. If you love Pony Express, then go to Get Your Goat. If you love Get Your Goat, you might want to go to like Wander Adult Desire. God, I have no idea. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I got a, I got a wrap up question here. Um, so you said you have a nine year old. I do. Jay has a seven year old. I have a five year old. So Mm -hmm. we're right behind you. Mm -hmm. Do you, how, how do you handle music with your nine year old? I'm super like whatever he wants. Not like, didactic about it um except i'm always playing music around so i am very aware of what he responds to so i mean you know if he wants to listen to you know he loves like abba and hamilton so there's a lot of abba and hamilton but he also loves the ramones and a lot of classic rock interestingly i mean he's definitely my kid he he you know he's like going for Queen and Bowie and Sabbath and, but mainly he's just obsessed with the Beatles. So it's not a problem because he, cause I like most of what he likes are the, where we diverge is probably uh, the Coldplay question. <laughs> I would say. Um, <laughs> Don't we all. Even though I've got like, you know, love for a handful of their songs. It's a, you know, it's, I, I don't necessarily agree with him when he says every Coldplay song is great. I'm like, I'm so glad you think so, man. You and the rest of the world, like I'm, I'm not in the majority of it. <laughs> and so, um, but, you know, but generally, in general, in terms of like music, style, whatever, it's totally his ballgame, whatever he wants. Do you ever put on stuff just to see what the reaction's going to be? Oh, sure. And I, and I often will be like really excited to play him something. I'll be like, Oh my God, you have to hear this song. It's called, it's called debut by EU. It's the best. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'm, I'm knee deep in my little pony right now. So I, I haven't gotten to where we can discuss Coldplay plus That's or minus so yet. That's so do you, listen to, do you listen to, they might be giants kids music? Uh, no, we haven't, we haven't gotten into like any, in terms of her liking music by like bands, it's all just like TV shows, soundtracks. Oh, yeah. um, I've even tried like some like kids music, quote unquote, that's by like mm-hmm. Lisa Loeb did a kids 
album yeah. and stuff like that. She doesn't really, she needs the visual to go with it. That's, that's what we were talking about before. Yep. Bring it all back. Bring it back mm-hmm. to the visual <laughs> audio. Go, guys. <laughs> hell, of a, hell of a couple of podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> we got to We got to put a bow on it as they say. Yeah. Um, Jay, was there anything else you wanted to cover or, uh, are we good? No, it's been great. Yes. It's been great. So nice talking to you guys. Really fun. Cleveland kiss. Donnie Iris. <laughs> See, we've set, you've said it all. We've covered it all. We literally covered it all from, from MSB to Donnie Iris and everything <laughs> in between. It's like a, it's like a WMS promo from 1987. It's, yeah, exactly. it's great. If we throw some 38 special in there, it'd be, uh, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be gold. Cut up next, Working Man by Rush. <laughs> it's the five o'clock hour. Let's play some Rush. It's rock black. Are you familiar with, uh, here's a Cleveland thing. <clears throat> Do you remember, was it, I think it was MMS, every Friday at five, they would play Born to Run? That rings a this? bell. Not something I thought of in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I, I took with me like for years at work. We would have you know music playing over the studio or whatever, and I would just play that five minute. Everybody's like, "Why do you keep doing that?" I'm like, "It's awesome. just what start, you do." I don't it's know. Just what you do, bro. <laughs> I'm gonna start playing "Born to Run" at five o'clock on Fridays for sure. Yep. You do that, and then you watch Big Chuck and Little John at uh, yeah, exactly. whatever eleven thirty on Saturday. <laughs> oh. Oh. All right. Uh, let's send people to your website, CraigWedrin.com. That's it. They can go and, and read all about all the stuff that you've worked on and, and check out all the music that you have made. Yeah. And um, they should go to all the various places that Adult Desire is available. Um, yeah, which is everywhere. I mean, it's streaming everywhere. I think yep. you can get the, you know indie vinyl at some indie stores or you can order it um, from discord.com. Uh, you can get my app uh, at the app store. Just type in Craig Wedren. It's free. And it's rad. And, um, yeah. Those are all the hands. And are you on any of the uh, social medias that people should know about? I'm Craig Wedren, at Craig Wedren, Twitter, um, Insta, FB, DK, NY, DC, HC, 4E. What? Wait, what? Are these the new ones? I I don't know these new ones. Is that like Friendster? No, I'm I'm just making it up. (laughs) There was a new dating app that uh, a single person said to me, and I was like, "Is that a real word that you're saying?" It was like ba- blabble or something, and I was like, "Yeah, you're like, yeah, that's a, you're a, you're in a skit now." I'm like, "Are you? Did you just stroke out on me? What's going on? Yeah. What was that word?" But it's I was there. Oh, Tinder's like so 2016, and I'm like, "Yeah, okay." So happy to have missed that. Break yeah. Out. All right, Craig. Thank you for spending thank a sunny you. evening with us. And oh yeah. Um, all right, guys. All right. Thanks, Craig. Thank I'll you. talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com.